Lord, it's so good to be able to start this morning out, to be able to declare that you truly are great in every way. Lord, thank you that you've given us the very breath that we breathe. Every breath that we take today has been given as a gift from you. And not only is our life given by you, but our restored lives, our redeemed lives because of Jesus, what you've done to set us free. And so, Lord, as we rejoice in who we are as your children this morning, Lord, we recognize as we're gathered here today that all over northern Colorado, Lord, people are waking up without hope. People are longing for what you have made them to experience in knowing you. And so, Lord, as we gather in this room, Lord, we want to keep our eyes fixed on really the harvest and, and, and what you are doing to redeem people and to restore people. Lord, we want to keep our eyes fixed on you, who is the author and perfecter of that faith, and begging you to do a work that only you can do to save the souls of men and women and children all throughout not only northern Colorado, but really this world, Lord. So we come just acknowledging how much we desperately need you. We come acknowledging that it's got to be you who works in the hearts of men and women to open their eyes to believe. And so we are desperate and we are dependent and we are needy people this morning. And so, Lord, we anticipate that there's much that you want to do in us. And, Lord, we anticipate there's much that you want to do through us as we are equipped during this time to be able to go out and press into this world that desperately needs you. And we long for your name to be glorified, for those who are waking up without hope, who do not know you, to be restored to their maker and to be worshipers of you. Lord, we long for that, for your namesake and for your glory. We love you, Jesus. We pray all these things in your matchless and your holy name. Amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. Thank you, Micah, for leading us. Dave, why don't you come on up here? Um, We're going to start out this morning um, just right away with our next session. And um, Dave, again, we just want to really thank you for taking the time to be with us. as I said last night, your voice has been a very encouraging and shaping voice uh, for us as a movement. So we're excited to be challenged. Um, we're going to be really, um, as we go through today, I think all of us are going to have some great um, fuel for discussion back at our churches about applying this. And so um, I just want to challenge all of us to really be considering what's being said and then think about how we can go and begin to implement this uh, back with our teams uh, wherever we may be. So um, can we thank the Lord for Dave again? We welcome him a little golf clap this morning. I feel the love. So as we begin this morning, we're going to uh, dive in and talk about flossing teeth and, uh, and making disciples. And I want to begin with this quote from Dallas Willard, because I think he really frames for us well the challenge that the American church is facing. He writes this. He says, true. You will find few scholars or leaders in Christian circles who deny that we're supposed to make disciples or apprentices to Jesus and teach them to do all things that Jesus said. Jesus' instructions on this matter are, after all, starkly clear. We just don't do what he said. We don't seriously attempt it and apparently we don't know how to do it. And I think the reality is, for all the talk about discipleship and disciple-making and making disciples who make disciples, there are a lot of people in this country that don't understand how to do it. How do we actually make disciples? I was having a conversation with a denominational leader a few years ago And he said to me, he said, Dave, I think one of the reasons we don't see our churches making more disciples is because pastors don't know how to make disciples. 
I was like, whoa. But then I began to think about it. Seminary doesn't really train you to make disciples. Seminary trains you to study the word and to preach and to do pastoral care and a lot of other things. But I, I have to tell you, I didn't take an, a single class on disciple making in my wonderful three years of seminary. Actually, it was four. It took me a little longer um, to get through it. And so I think what we really need to recognize is that it's one thing to say we're about making disciples. It's another thing to see every believer engaged in the process of making disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who then make disciples. That we begin to look about what, it, what does that look like to make disciples to the fourth generation and beyond. You say, Dave, why do you, why do you think about the fourth generation? Well, I, I, I think that... Um, in 2 Timothy 2, when Paul says to Timothy, the things that you've learned from me, right, that you're to pass on to faithful men who will teach others also. I think he lays out for us the importance of looking to four generations. And really, it's not until, if you think about it, it's not until Timothy has actually made a disciple that makes a disciple that we see the fruit of Paul's disciple-making. It shows up in the fourth generation when we have disciple-making disciples as the fruit of our discipleship. How many of you, wild question, brushed your teeth this morning? You don't have to raise your hand, but I'm hoping most of you did. Okay. How many of you flossed your teeth this morning? Okay, a few of you. All right. <clears throat> I went to the dentist a few years ago, and uh, <clears throat> I don't know about you, but when I, I, okay, so I used to hate going to the dentist. Any of you in that I hate going to the dentist camp? Okay. I used to hate going to the dentist, but what I discovered is I really like the feeling of clean teeth. So even though it's a pain <laughs> sometimes going to the dentist, I like the result of clean teeth. And I'm at the dentist, and... I, okay, so I know when I get to the dentist that my hygienist is always going to ask me the same question. Maybe you've experienced this. I know she's going to ask me, have you been flossing your teeth? So I don't like to lie. I like to speak with integrity. And I don't like to answer that question, no. So about two weeks before I go to the <laughs> dentist, I start flossing my teeth. Anyway, this was my, this was my uh, plan. So I'm, I, I, I would floss my teeth for two weeks. Then when I get there and she says, have you been flossing your teeth? Well, of course I've been flossing my teeth. Now, I don't even know why she asked the question, because she can tell by looking at my teeth how much flossing I've done or not. But I think she wants to talk to me about flossing. So I'm sitting in the chair. We go through this routine, and she says this to me. She says, you know, Dave, if you had to choose between brushing your teeth every day and flossing your teeth every day, you really ought to floss your teeth. And I'm like, wait a minute. I've been brushing my teeth faithfully morning and evening for decades, and now you're telling me that flossing my teeth is more important. How many of you knew that flossing your teeth was more important than brushing your teeth? 
That's it? Okay, new information. Okay. And I've confirmed this over and over again with other dentists. And when I speak, I get a hearty amen from the dentist. Any dent- dental workers in the, in the room? Okay. Um, so this, is, this fascinated me. That flossing my teeth was more important than... Br- I mean, I, I am a good brush. How many of you are good brushers? I'm really good at brushing my teeth. This half of the room, you are much more responsive than this half of the room. Or you're just better brushers, so let me commend you, okay? Now, it's funny because every time I go to the dentist, she does the same thing. She wants to teach me, again, how to floss my teeth. Have you ever had that happen? Like, here's how you floss your teeth. I'm like, I should know how to do this by now. So as I left, after she said this to me, I began thinking about this spiritual parallel in my mind. Between going to church and making disciples. Going to church and making disciples. And I I began to think that the reality is, is I was raised to be a good church goer. Anybody else grow up going to church, being a good church goer? I mean, I I, I got it like really ingrained in me because my dad was a pastor So we went on Sunday morning, and we went on Sunday night, and we went midweek. I was a really good churchgoer. And I began to think about this reality, that if if Jesus were here with us, and if he asked us the question, if you had to choose between going to church And making disciples. What do you think Jesus would say is most important? Anyone? Making disciples. disciples. Good answer. Yeah. Because that's what he did. He modeled for us disciple making. And then he commissioned his disciples to go make disciples. Who would make disciples? Who would make disciples? And I began to realize that I had put the emphasis on the wrong thing. That I had put the emphasis that if you were a good Christian, you were a good churchgoer. You showed up. You served the members of the body. You participated in your small group. You gave regularly to the work of the ministry. Maybe even you'd go on a mission trip or something like that. But what I realized is that what mattered to Jesus most was are we making disciples who make disciples? Now, I'm not saying gathering for worship isn't important, just like I would never tell you that brushing your teeth isn't important. But if you only got time for one, floss. Okay? If you've only got time for one, I think Jesus would say, make disciples disciples. And not only make disciples, but make disciples who make disciples who make disciples. As we think about church planting and we think about multiplication, churches are the result of disciple making. Jesus didn't say, right, go plant churches. He said what? Go make disciples. Well, as you make disciples, guess what happens? 
Churches are born. It's the fruit of our disciple-making. So I want to challenge you that we don't start churches to make disciples. We actually start churches by making disciples. So who should go start churches? Proven multipliers. People who are already engaged in the process of making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. Does, does that make sense? I think, I think it, sometimes I think this is like so obvious, maybe you're like going, duh, Dave. But I, but I think it needs to be said. Because too many times we think, well, let's, let's get a really great place to gather and start worship services, and the result of that will be disciple makers. And the reality is, if the result of starting worship services was disciple makers, we'd see disciple makers all over the place. Because there's a lot of worship services going on on Sunday morning. Are you with me? So we have to be about making disciples. And I said this last night, I'll say it again, because I think it's really important. If you can't reproduce disciples, you'll never reproduce leaders. And if you can't reproduce leaders, you'll never reproduce churches. And if you, if you can't reproduce churches, you'll never see a movement. And we keep talking about, we want to see a movement of churches. But the movement happens when we start in the right place. And that place is making disciples who make disciples who make disciples. So how do you make a disciple? I like what John MacArthur says here. He says, you go to somebody who isn't one. You win them to Jesus Christ, right? So what does that imply? That implies that they're not already following Jesus. They aren't already a believer. Disciple-making actually starts with non-Christians. Now, in the church, we've divided this into evangelism and discipleship. So we assume that discipleship starts post-conversion. Evangelism is everything we do pre-conversion. I would like to suggest to you that Jesus didn't have this dichotomy in mind. When he said, go make disciples, he wanted them to go find people who weren't already following him. Back to the quote. You find, you go to someone who isn't one, you win them to Jesus Christ, you teach them all things whatsoever I have commanded, and you build them up in the word. That's the job all of us have. I would add just two words to his quote. You teach them to obey all that I've commanded. Because it's not about knowing all that Jesus commanded. It's actually about doing what he commanded. It's about obedience. And so what are we about? Well, we need to be about making obedient disciples, right? So disciple-making really starts with non-disciples. It starts with non-Christians. I think when, when Jesus said, go... Therefore, and make disciples. He wasn't imagining that his disciples would go out and find all the people who were already following Jesus and help them to follow Jesus better. 
You think that's what he had in mind? Go disciple the people who are already disciples. I, I don't think that's what he was after. I think Jesus wanted them to go find those people who were not yet followers of Jesus and to begin to disciple them to become followers of Jesus. So in, in a real sense, we disciple people to the cross so that they come to understand the message and the, the hope of the gospel. And then we disciple them in the way of the cross to go and make more disciples. So I want to <clears throat> talk to you about three simple skills that I think every Christ follower needs to develop. Just three skills. Okay? So the first one, got to love this, really simple, follow Jesus. And that takes skill. That's a skill. It needs to be developed. We need to become better followers of Jesus, don't we? So I'd like to suggest to you that being a follower of Jesus, we need to develop habits in our lives. We need habits of faith, habits of love, and habits of hope. Okay? And I'm just going to throw up that diagram we looked at last night. Okay? So remember, faith, hope, and love, right? Faith is that aspect of embracing the cross. Hope is that aspect of engaging those in the culture. And love is that aspect of experiencing community. All three of those things are critical to how we follow Jesus. And we need to develop habits in each of these three circles. So what's a habit? I went to the dictionary. I'll make it easy for you, okay? So a habit is an acquired Behavior pattern regularly followed until it has become almost involuntary, right? The habit of looking both ways before crossing the street. Do you guys think about that? No, you just do it. It's, it, it should be instinctive, right? So we want to develop those habits that we naturally do. So I want to throw out to you just some, some basic habits that come to my mind when I think about faith and hope and love. Okay. Now, my challenge to you would be to say, what are the habits that you want to commit to? But for me, if I'm thinking about my faith habits, how I embrace the cross, how I strengthen my faith, it involves daily time alone with God. I use a little method of soap journaling. Maybe some of you are familiar with that. We look at scripture, observation, application, and prayer. Okay, that's soap. And every time I come to Scripture, I want to ask myself the question, what will I do in response to what I've just read? Practically speaking, how will I obey? And I want to come up with an I will statement every time I read the Word of God to say, what will I do in response to what I just read? Okay. Secondly, daily confession and prayer, both Personally and with my wife, I want to deal with the issues that I need to repent of in my life. I want that to be my habit, right? And then weekly fasting, maybe that is something you would like to consider, whether it's a meal or a full day, but taking the time to cultivate that habit that reminds us of our dependence on God. 
weekly celebration of communion, whether you do that with your church family or whether you do that personally in your own life or with your family or with your small group. But how are you remembering the cross? Jesus, isn't that what, when he, when he had that first uh, celebration of communion, the Lord's table, right? He said, do this in remembrance of me, right? So it's a time to remember. What, I, I'm not saying these have to be your habits, but what are your habits as you follow Jesus? Secondly, let's talk about love habits. And maybe that's weekly connecting with your small group so you have people to love on and practice the one another's of scripture. Or weekly worshiping with your church family where you're connecting in community and being ministered to and ministering to them. Maybe it's a weekly meal or coffee or some activity with other Christians where you're strengthening and encouraging one another. I, I love you know, Hebrews 10.25. It says, you know, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together as some are in the habit of doing, Right? But what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to stimulate and encourage one another to love and good deeds. You know what I've discovered? That's really hard to do in a worship gathering on Sunday morning. But it's a whole lot easier to do over a meal, meeting somebody for coffee, to encourage them in their faith, to develop them and strengthen them as followers of Jesus. And then just practically, daily acts of kindness or service where you encourage. Maybe it's writing an encouraging note to someone. Maybe it's calling somebody up. Maybe sending a text, putting something, you know, uh, through whatever means of communication we have. We have so many different methods to, to stay in touch with people. Actually use them for that purpose of living out what it means to love one another in community. Does, it, does that make sense? And then thirdly, to think about hope habits. You know, how are you blessing people who aren't yet followers of Jesus? Had an interesting situation happen one day. We're home, and I get a knock at the door. Maybe you've had a knock at the door. There's two guys standing there in white shirts. They want to come in and talk to me. I tell them, no, I'm not going to let them in to talk to me. And then they ask me this question. <clears throat> are there any needs that you have that we could meet? I was like, well, if I had any needs, I'm not going to let you meet them. That was my first thought. So I just said no. I wanted them to go away. Then they asked me this question. Are you aware of any needs that your neighbors have that we could meet? And I was like, well, if I was, I wouldn't tell you because I don't want you to meet them. <laughs> that was my first thought. My second thought was, why am I not concerned and aware of the needs of my neighbors? And I was convicted in that moment that they were more concerned about my neighbors and meeting their needs than I was. And then the third question they asked before I said goodbye was, hey, can we give you our cards so that if you have any needs or you become of any aware of any needs in your neighborhood, you can let us know so we could meet them? Wow. Now, I just like to raise the bar up a little for all of us to say, maybe we just need to ask every day, what needs am I aware of? And then what does God want me to do to meet those needs? How can we bless those around us? 
I would challenge you also to be daily praying for unbelievers and for harvest workers. Luke 10, 2, right? Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. That should be a habit that we cultivate. I have an alarm on my phone. It's set for 10.02. And at 10.02 p.m. every day, my alarm goes off. And it reminds me to pray for laborers. And I pray specifically for church planters that I know. Some of the men in this room who have been planting churches. I pray on a daily basis for church planters. Because it says pray for harvest workers. I pray that God would raise up workers to join them in that ministry. And then other ways you can develop habits. Share your grace story. Share what you're learning from God's word. Have a weekly meal, coffee, or activity that you engage with unbelievers every week. Make that a habit in your life, okay? So I really want to emphasize this because I think as we develop habits in following Jesus, we then can show others how to develop those same habits, okay? So... I haven't done a survey, but my guess is that about 80% of people in America who claim to be Christians would say, oh yeah, I'm following Jesus. Now we can debate whether or not they're really following Jesus or not, but I think 80% of them would claim to follow Jesus. Does that sound right? Okay. Second habit, help someone else follow Jesus. Really simple, right? And I would encourage you, these habits that you're cultivating that as you follow Jesus, help somebody else to develop those same habits. That's part of this disciple-making process. As you follow Jesus, help someone else follow Jesus, right? Isn't that what Paul said? Be imitators, right? Follow me as I follow Christ, Who are you saying that to? Who are you encouraging to say, just follow my example. Do what I do. As I follow Jesus, you follow Jesus the same way. That's the essence of what we're talking about here in disciple making. And I would challenge you that only about 20% of those who claim to follow Jesus are actually intentional about helping someone else to follow Jesus. And I'm going to include all the pastors and all the missionaries and all the small group leaders and elders and and everybody else. But I think only about two out of 10, 20 out of 100 are actually intentional about helping somebody else follow Jesus. Who is it that you're helping to follow Jesus? Okay, skill number two, help somebody else follow Jesus. Skill number three, ready? It's really deep. Here you go. Help others to help others to follow Jesus. Okay? This is where that disciple-making disciple really takes place. Okay? Where we begin to say, it's not just about I'm following Jesus or I'm helping somebody else to follow Jesus, but I'm helping somebody, that somebody else to help others to follow Jesus. That's where multiplication starts to happen. Okay? So what do we do? We work toward that fourth generation. And we don't just tell them what to do. We do it with them, right? Here's how you help somebody else to follow Jesus. 
And we ourselves, we keep on helping others to follow Jesus. And we use reproducible methods so we don't make it real complicated. That's one of the things I love about soap. I can show somebody how to soap in about five minutes or less. In fact, one day I was sitting in a coffee shop doing my soaping, and the guy over, next to me looks over, and he's like, what are you doing? And I'm like irritated because I was soaping. You know, I'm, I'm just my time with God in the coffee shop, right? So I grab a napkin, <clears throat> and I write it out. S, scripture. And I go, I just write down one verse that I read. I read, you know, about a chapter. I just write down one verse. And then I put the O, observation. I just write down a simple few sentences about what does this verse say to me? What does it mean? And then A, application. And usually I write out an I will statement. So I'm just explaining this to him on the, on the napkin. And then I pray and I ask God to help me live that out. And I take the napkin and I crunch it up and I go to make a shot toward the trash can. And he goes, hey, can I keep that? He goes, I've, I've read the Bible before, but I really, I really don't understand it much. But I've got a friend I'd like to try that with. I'm like, oh my gosh, what am I doing here? I'm so concerned about my relationship with Jesus that I'm missing out on an opportunity to actually disciple someone how to follow Jesus. It's not that complicated, but we make it really difficult, all right? And then I would say at the end, this is your responsibility. This is not an option. This is what Jesus expects of all of us. Help others to help others how to follow Jesus. Does that make sense? A few years ago, I had this really cool car. It was a Honda Del Sol. Anybody remember the Honda Del Sol? <clears throat> it was a 97 Del Sol that my friend, Len Sanukian, had sold to me for $3,000. I was pretty excited about my Del Sol. I called it my, my midlife crisis car, even though it was 10 plus years old when I got it. I was like, this is, this is kind of cool. I can pop the top off on a sunny day in Bellevue, cruise around in my little Del Sol. I was having a great time with my Del Sol. And uh, my son moves to Florida, and he calls me up one day. He's like, Dad, you got three cars. Can I have one? I need a car. He'd been living in New York City for four years, didn't need a car. All of a sudden, now he's in Florida. He needs a car. So I have a Ford Explorer. I had a Pontiac, and I have this. Del Sol. So we take the Del Sol and we put it on a flatbed truck and we ship it across the country. Doug gets the car. He's driving around one day. I'm visiting a church planner in California, Roy Shin. Some of you know Roy, great guy. And uh, I get a phone call from Dad and, uh, from Doug. And he's like, Dad, the engine's overheating. What do I do? I go, where are you? He goes, I'm on the freeway. Get off the freeway. You know, first step, right? So he gets off the freeway, ends up, we get the car worked on, <clears throat> and uh, he's tooling around again. He calls me up the next week. Dad, it's overheating again. I'm like, oh, man. Okay, go find somebody in your church that's a mechanic, have them take a look at it, and have them call me. So I get the phone call. Uh, Mr. DeVries, your engine has a blown head gasket. But good news, 
I found a rebuilt engine we can put in your car. It'll only cost you $3,500. I'm thinking, I only paid $3,000 for the car. So what do I do, right? So I put it up for sale. $1,000 or best offer, okay? Here's what I found out. People don't want cars with engines that don't work. <laughs> isn't, isn't that amazing? People don't want cars with engines that don't work. And I was like, why does anybody want to buy my car? I ended up trading the dead car for the work already done on it. I just got rid of it, right? Because I didn't need it anymore. It, it didn't work. And I wasn't going to dump more money into it. So here's the reality. Churches need an engine that works. Churches need a disciple-making engine. Okay? You say, Dave, what, what are you talking about? What is a disciple-making engine? Can we throw that slide up there? Um, yeah, go forward just a couple. Yep, there we go. So a disciple-making engine is an effective process for making disciples who make disciples. That's your disciple-making engine. It's the process for how we make disciples that make disciples. And the reality is, is that too many churches are like cars that won't start. They don't have a functioning disciple-making engine. I would suggest that most churches had one at one time. But they've blown the head gasket. It doesn't work anymore, and they don't actually realize that the, they lack an engine to move people forward in making disciples who make disciples. So I'd like to unpack for you five key components of a disciple-making engine to try to help you understand what, what does that look like practically, okay? So the first thing, when I think about a disciple-making engine, that's the process for making disciples who make disciples who make disciples, is that it actually results in disciples making disciples, and you say, that, that's pretty obvious. And I say, no, it isn't. Because a lot of people in churches get involved in activities that don't actually result in making disciples who make disciples. And we just keep repeating those activities over and over again. We have to actually look at the results. Does our process for making disciples who make disciples actually end up with disciple-making disciples? Does that make sense? So we see the fruit in the generations, right? If you can look to four generations, right? So I make a disciple who makes a disciple who makes a disciple. If you can see that happening, then I'll say, hey, you've got a disciple-making engine that works. But if you're like most churches, what you do is you make disciples who then come to the services to be discipled in the Sunday gathering as if that's what Jesus had in mind when he said, go make disciples. 
So we have a pastor who's making lots of disciples, but we don't actually have disciples who are making disciples. So first part of your engine just needs to say it actually results in disciples making disciples. Okay, number two. The second component is that it's easily transferable and reproducible. Okay, I talked about the soap aspect, right? I've developed an, a, another kind of disciple-making model that I use. I call it the RX-7. If you're interested, I can show it to you. But basically, I would encourage you to know how are we going to engage people with the truth of who Jesus is and the scriptures and the gospel on a regular basis so that they become obedient followers of Jesus. Does that make sense? So it's got to be simple and not complicated. And I, I would challenge you. Well, no, I'll get to that. That's number six. So forget it. That, oh, I gave it away. There's actually six, not five. But that's okay. We'll keep going. Okay. Easily transferable. I like the idea of, you know, it can, your process, you can explain it on a piece of paper or even better on a napkin, right? That it's not so complicated a process for making disciples that we need a whole manual that takes a year to go through it. Because what I found is when you have a manual that takes a year to go through to actually become a disciple maker or a, 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 a disciple is when people complete the manual, they think they're done. So anyway, but I'll come back to that, okay? Number three, your disciple-making engine emphasizes obedience. So it has a teaching-to-obey mechanism built in. You say, Dave, what is a teaching-to-obey mechanism? I'm, I'm so glad you asked, okay? I would refer to this as, as we, we resolve and we then review, okay? We resolve. We make an I will commitment statement in response to what we've discussed or what we've read, particularly in Scripture, so how many of you have been to a Bible study where you enjoy studying the Word of God? Anybody? Okay. How many of you have taken really good notes in that Bible study and stuck them on a shelf somewhere? Anybody? I've done that. I've got lots of shelves full of notes and boxes and scraps of paper and all kinds of stuff. I've got, I got study guides that I've filled in every word. Okay. But here's the deal. Most of those methods teach us to know. And we actually practice <clears throat> a just-in-case approach to Scripture and obedience. So say, for example, we're studying in Ephesians chapter 4, and we study all that it means to don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's a good verse, right? Good, good concept. And so I file it away just in case I'm ever angry with someone someday, I'll remember not to let the sun go down on my anger. That's a good-to-know truth, to stick in my mind, to know, right? But that's very different than teaching to obey, okay? Teaching to obey, we read that passage, and we come to it, and it says, don't let the sun go down on your anger, and we all talk around our group. This is our small group at your table, right? And we all... Consider, who is it that I'm most angry at right now in my life? Or a few verses later, it has that 
part, you know, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. And we think, oh, if I'm ever struggling to forgive someone, I'll remember I'm supposed to do that. But what if we went around the circle and we all shared who's the hardest person to forgive in our lives right now? And then what if we actually made a commitment that said, I will make things right with this person? So let's imagine we come up with our I will statements. Maybe someone's going to, you know, Kevin's going to pray about it. You know, Stephen's actually going to do something about it. Okay, he's going to, he's, not that prayer's bad, but, you know, he's actually going to go meet with someone and make things right. Okay. Now let's say we come back to our Bible study next week. Normally what we do is we jump into the next passage, Ephesians chapter 5, right? We don't go back and review Ephesians 4. We just move forward. All right. So Stephen here has decided, I will forgive my dad for all the abuse I experienced. And I want, I want to make things right. So he goes out that week and he does the hard work of living out what the scriptures say. And he comes back to small group the next week. And instead of talking about what happened when you obeyed, we just jump into the next passage. And it's, you know, it comes down to that verse in verse three, you know, not even a hint of, of sexual immorality. And Stephen, I don't know you, so just go with the illustration, okay? <clears throat> so, so Stephen's like, you know, oh man, I got to get rid of that, you know, truckload of pornography that's under my bed, okay? So he, he does the hard work. He burns it. He gets rid of it. He's making his heart pure before God. He comes back to small group the next week, and we don't talk about what happened when you obeyed. You just jump to the next passage, and we get into, you know, the, the next section about, you know, uh, um, oh, now making, uh, what is it, uh, making the most of your time because the days are evil. We talk about time management. And so now he's going to give up his subscription to Netflix because he's been binge-watching series after series. And so he does that that week. And we come back the next week, and we don't actually talk about it. Now we're getting into, you know, husbands love your wives. Are, are you married? Great, cool. So now he's like, oh, man, I really haven't been loving my wife. But you know what? They don't care if I obey or not. Nobody cares if I do this or not. So I'm going to make something up about what I'm going to do for my wife this week. It doesn't matter whether I do it, if it sounds good, right? Hopefully the wife isn't in the group because then, you know, she'd give it away. But what happens is, is when we just keep moving forward, teaching the text, teaching the text, teaching the text, and we challenge people to obey, but we never review and talk about what happened, we miss the opportunity to reinforce obedience and learn from grace-based community when we don't actually follow through on what we said and being strengthened. So imagine Stephen forgives his dad. He comes back to your group and he says, man, I, 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 I forgave my dad. And your name? Dan. Dan goes, oh man, I couldn't do that. I got issues, you know, with my dad and my brother. And everybody in my family haven't seen him in five years. You know, I'm, I'm just making stuff up. I hope it's not true. Okay, so, <clears throat> so Dan hears what Stephen has done. And now he's encouraged in the Lord to actually live out the same passage, right? And we're strengthening and growing together in community. And we're discipling in community Because we have a commitment to resolve to obey and then to review what's happening. That's the teaching to obey mechanism that I'm talking about. 
You want to transform people's lives? Actually bring them to the word of God. Help them to understand what it says, to make even baby steps toward living it out, and then follow up and see what God does when they actually do it. Try that in your own life. Try that in the life for your small group and with others. And I, I, I'm telling you right now, you will see phenomenal life change. Because we no longer teach to know, just in case, but we actually teach to obey. Does that make sense? Okay, next one. Number four. I'll wrap this up quick. Okay, it, it includes both non-believers and believers. So whatever your disciple-making engine is, it needs to work with someone who's not yet a follower of Jesus. So as we come to the scriptures and we ask questions of the text, what does it mean? What do you like about what you just read? What don't you like? What do you understand? What don't you understand? What are the implications of, if wherever you are in your spiritual journey, what would it look like to obey what it says this week? So whatever your process is for making disciples, it works and includes both believers and unbelievers. You don't have to wait to be a Christian to be included in our discipleship process. We invite you to come learn how to follow Jesus with us as we follow Jesus. Okay? And then, number five, it trains everyone to train others. So it's not just the idea that we have a special discipleship training over here for training up disciple makers. Our disciple-making engine actually trains everybody how to do it because it's simple and it's reproducible and we're all doing it together, okay? So training needs to emphasize the fact that every, this, is, this is normal for every Christian. This isn't just what super Christians do or you have to go to a certain pastor's school, you know, in a different state that costs you tons of money to learn how to do this because, frankly, they're not teaching you how to do that over there anyway. Okay, so it happens at that grassroots level. And then bonus number six. It uses the Bible as the curriculum. The Bible's our curriculum for our disciple-making engine. Why? Well, it goes back to what I said earlier. If you use a study guide, when you finish the study guide, what happens? It goes on the shelf and we're done. Do you think we're ever going to finish being discipled through this book? Any of you had enough of the Bible yet? Any of you so saturated in the way you think and act that you don't need this? See, part of the problem is if we disciple people through a curriculum that just takes verses from the Bible and puts it over here in the curriculum, what ends up happening is they become dependent on the curriculum, not on the Bible and what the Spirit of God is teaching them through the Word of God. So my challenge to you is, and I'm not anti-curriculum, I've actually written some that I actually like, but I've decided they're not as effective as getting people into the Word of God, wherever they are in their spiritual journey. My wife and I love giving Bibles away to the people that we're starting to disciple to Jesus. So our trainer is one of them. We've given him a Bible, and then he and I meet together to talk about what he's reading and what he doesn't understand and what it looks like to live that out. And he's getting closer and closer to following Jesus. Okay? 
But I want to challenge you that, that it starts with Scripture. It starts with getting people into the Bible. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stop right there. Um, I don't know what your disciple-making engine is that you're using, but I, I want to just emphasize this. <clears throat> if you guys are all, I don't know if you're all at the same church, but let's just say you are for this illustration, okay? You're all at the same church, and you're all discipling me as I learn how to follow Jesus, and I come into community and relationship with all of you, Right? If you're discipling me through one method and you're using another method and you're using another method, I'm the new disciplee, you know, coming into this process, I'm going to get pretty confused. And then, Brian, if I spend the most time with you, okay, and you disciple me one way, but then I notice you're discipling, you know, uh, Sean over there differently, I'm going to look at what you're doing and I'm going to go, I could never be a disciple maker because Brian's too good. I'll just let Brian do all the discipling of my friends. So I'll bring all my friends to Brian to be discipled rather than becoming a disciple maker myself because he's the super disciple making disciple. And I wonder if we all adopt the same process together, if I might catch it better And if together, we might be able to encourage each other. And then as people come into our community who are being discipled, they're not discovering five different ways of disciple making. They're just discovering one. So back to simple, transferable, reproducible. I think if you can come up with one way that you emphasize in making disciples as your group or as your community or even as big as your church family, you're going to see greater fruit and traction from that. So um, I noticed somebody was taking pictures of the slides. If you want, you can download just that last part, the five keys to disciple-making engines. If you send a text with just five engines, no space, just that's the message to 44222, you'll get a document back. You have to give me your email address, and then it'll automatically um, send you the document from those slides. Okay. All right, I'm done for now. Back to you. Why don't we take a break? Um, So grab some coffee, go to the bathroom. We'll take about a full minute break or so. We'll be back in here for a panel, but we're going to try to flush this out. Um, We'll build this up second in different churches here on the front range. So take a few minutes of break, and uh, we'll be back here in a few minutes. It's 10 o'clock.